Um, so it has been, we've been here for a while. Um, and much like I have gone on and on in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, much like maybe at the end of a sermon some days you're doing this, it appears that the writer of Hebrews has kind of hit that moment where maybe his audience is maybe yawning just a little too much. Maybe they're uh, starting to say, okay, man, wrap it up. Uh, because he kind of goes into fast forward mode. He's going to give us a list as we read 30 through 40 of many different people. And, and he goes even from naming specific to people to naming types of people. Uh, so we'll, we'll start off and we'll look at Joshua and we'll look at Rahab. Uh, then we'll even look at some quickly through some judges, Gideon and uh, Samson. And then he'll start going and others who conquered kingdoms and others and so on and so forth. We'll look at it. Uh, as he rapidly comes to a conclusion here. So with that in mind, let us look at Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 30 through 40. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? That's the great, and in conclusion, right? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, attained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. So they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the, with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of, who, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I want to go on and read the first half of, of chapter 1 of verse 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, and I'm going to stop there. And the reason I want to read that last part there is just because I want you to draw on the connection next week. The great cloud of witness that I'll be talking about next week, and sometimes when we go from week to week, we can allow our minds to forget what we had the last week, right? The great cloud of witness is everybody he's just talked about. In fact, that's why the sermon this week is called, I believe I entitled it, A Great Cloud of Witness, because it's all those in chapter 11. But as we look at this section, I think we should be reminded, we should think about those who have made impact on our lives. Maybe uh, we have that moment, that turning point in our life where we can point to someone and say, they had an impact in my life that they turned the course of my life. Uh, this last week, I was able to worship in Chattanooga. Well, Chattanooga was in Georgia, Flintstone, where my wife and I got married, where the church that she was in and, and my daughters were in before we met. Uh, I got to worship there with the pastor who was there who married us, Dan Gilchrist. And Dan... When I was in seminary, I was in seminary with the end goal of going into RUF. That was my desire. I was going to go into campus ministry. I've been before. I've been in RUF prior to going to seminary. I did a two-year internship in Clemson. I'm sure maybe some of you, at least half of you, are hoping Clemson will do well tomorrow. 
while the other half is hoping not. Uh, but I went to seminary. My goal, I'm going to go through four years of seminary. I'm going to come out of the other side. I'm going to go to RUF. But to finish my, my seminary degree, I had to do a year in, or a summer internship. And I didn't know where I was going to do it. And I was talking to my sister and brother, and they were like, well, maybe you can do it here. And through some course of action, I was able to do it there. And that whole summer, uh, I spent with Dan, just shadowing him, looking what it was like to be a pastor in a small church. And over and over again, he kept telling me, you know, Daniel, our small churches need pastors. Our small churches need people who are going to come and stay with them, not people who are going to use them as a stepping block, a stepping stone to the next better thing. And I left that summer going, I don't think God's calling me to campus ministry anymore. And I spent my last year of seminary with the mind of, I'm going to go this different direction. Dan made an impact in my life. It was nice because Dan's finishing up at CVPC, at the church they're at, and this is his last month, and I got to stand there. And I told him, I said, you know, you changed the course of my life. God used you to change the course of my life. And I, I say, I often will talk about you when I talk about why, why I'm doing what I'm doing. He's like, thank you. <laughs> and as pastors, I think we sometimes don't get that and to know that, that's going on, and I think it was good for him to hear. But it's, it's uh, people have these important moments, play big parts of our life that change the course of our life. And you might have someone you might think of, someone who came to you in a moment and said something to you, and it changed how you thought about something. It changed the way you saw something. It maybe even brought you from the point of unbelief to belief. And not that it was those person, people who did it, but they were the people that God used. And this is what the writer of Hebrews has been doing through chapter 11. As we remember, Hebrews, uh, the letter of Hebrews is written to a people who are what? They're struggling. They're hurting. They're suffering. They're being persecuted, and they go, you know what, this Christianity, it's not good, because if I, if I just go back to being Jewish, the Jewish people are fine. They're not suffering the same things that we Christians are now suffering. Maybe we'll just go back, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, don't do that, and why shouldn't they do that? Because Jesus is better than everything. Because Jesus is better than all else. And he gives this list, of the, this long list of people. Who says, look, this is how Jesus is better. And he goes down into all these different types of people. And, and you, you may have, as we read through this, you may have heard, oh, I know who that is. Stop the mouths of lions. Daniel. Or you might go through and you say, quench the power of fire. And you think, oh, that must be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And how they went to that fiery furnace and they didn't burn up. And over and over again, you go through here and you see these examples. Women receiving back from their dead. And you think of Elijah. You think of others who were tortured. Who suffered mocking, mocking and flogging and chains. And you can look at any number of the prophets. You can go to Isaiah. You can go even to the New Testament, to John the Baptist, or to Paul, or even to Jesus himself. Who ultimately endured this kind of suffering. And the great conclusion of the book or this chapter of Hebrews is, and they, they didn't receive the promise. Not a one of them. They didn't receive the fullness of the promise. 
And so as we come and we look at these people, we're going to see three things today. Those who trusted, those who overcame, and those who persevere. Those who trusted, those who overcame, and those who persevere. Uh, If you'll remember last time we met, we were at the Red Sea. Uh, And there's this very intentional absence from the Red Sea to Jericho. Uh, Because if you remember, that was 40 years of grumbling and punishment in the wilderness. Uh, and so we go, from Jer- we go from the Red Sea to Jericho, and we start with Joshua. Joshua, who is the leader now of Israel, who comes to Jericho, and, and the angel of the Lord comes to, uh, to, to Joshua. It's called the commander of the Lord's army here. Many believe to be in the pre-incarnate Christ. And he says, okay, Joshua, I want, I want you to know that uh, Yahweh has delivered Jericho into your hands. And as a military leader at that point, you're going, good deal, right? Well, that's good. How are we going to do it? Do we need to charge the gates? Do we just need to storm in and, and just annihilate them? Because, okay, this is what I want you to do. For seven days, I want you to walk around the city. And then on the seventh day, I, oh, you want us to charge the city? No, I want you to blow trumpets and scream. And, and you imagine Joshua going, well, that doesn't sound like very sound military advice. I'm sure if you went to any... General at the Pentagon right now and said, hey, here's the military strategy and you're gonna, everything will be taken care of. They'd be go, you're a crazy person and who let you in here? Because it was God's doing. By faith, the people did exactly what they were commanded to do. And mixed with Joshua in this Jericho event is Rahab. Rahab the prostitute. Rahab who encountered the spies of Joshua. And what did she do? She hid them. This Jericho, this woman of Jericho, this woman of ill repute. And what was given to her? She was given a promise. Hold out, a, put out a red, a red cord. And when we come and take this city, you and your family will be safe. Oh, by the way, do you know what it doesn't say about Rahab? Rahab, who would end up being Boaz's mother, I believe. I think that's right. Or somewhere in there. Maybe great-grandma, I can't remember. From Boaz, we get to who? David. From David, we get to who? Jesus. Rahab, this woman of faith. It's It's an odd pairing, really, isn't it? Joshua and Rahab. And it's wonderful, too, because you really have both ends of the spectrum, don't you? They don't seem to have a lot in common. But they have one most important thing in common. They believed on the Lord and trusted in his power to save. Do we have faith that trusts? Do we have faith that trusts in God that he can and will do all that he says that he will do? And as they say... The proof is always found in the pudding. I don't know what that means exactly. I know what they're getting at. I'm sure it has something to do with British pudding, not really like American pudding. I don't know. My wife's been making me watch a lot of the great British baking show. Anyway, the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the way we live. And we can point to many external struggles 
that are going on all around us. We can look at the world, we can look at government, we can look at, at society, whatever we want to say, we can be discouraged. We may see things, things are falling apart, and it's easy for us to become distracted and focus on earthly things and take our attention off of heavenly things. It's easy for us to allow us ourselves to think that these are the important things. What the writer of Hebrews is, is reminding us, what the, the, the Bible is reminding us, is that we need to take our eyes off of the things of the world and put our eyes on Jesus. We have to refocus ourselves on the things of God. And what are the things of God? I alluded it to in our pastor prayer this morning, and it's something you probably have heard me use on, on many occasions, because I think it's the greatest summary of, of, of anything we can say, what are we supposed to be doing, Daniel? I mean, it's, it's the question asked to Jesus, right? Um, hey, hey, Jesus, how do I get to heaven? Or, or no, excuse me, what was the greatest commandment? What's the thing I should be following above all else? And Jesus says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And... The second to this, love your neighbor as yourself. If you were to say, Daniel, what is the business of a Christian? What are we to be about? It's not first and foremost trying to transform and change the society around us. I think that's an implication of what we do. It's not first and foremost trying to, well, we just need to elect, elect the right people to government position. I think that's a result of this happening. What am I called to do as a Christian? Love your God. Love your neighbor. Love your God and love your neighbor how? Like you love yourself. That's what we're called to do, to live our, our life of faith daily on display. Trusting and obeying in God's word. And what, is, what ends up being the result of that? When our neighbor goes, why do you love me the way that you love me? Why do you care for me the way you care for me? I don't understand. I'm not like you. I don't believe in the things that you believe in. I begin to ask questions by the power of God. And Lord willing, they become transformed. We have to be those who trust and obey him. So we see those who trust, but we also see those who overcome. And this is where we enter into our, our two lists that we have here. And they're broken up into two sections. Really, those who have overcome obstacles and those who have endured suffering. That's kind of how the list here. 32 through the first part of 35 are those who overcome obstacles. 35, the second half through 38, are all those who persevere in great suffering. And we really get to some rapid-fire thing, and we're not going to spend a lot of time looking at these guys. If you want to know who these guys are, Google them. Um, it's a great source. I mean, Google it. Uh, most of them, if you, if you want to know who they are, just go to the book of Judges. Most of them are in the book of Judges. All except, no, even Gideon, I believe, is in the book of Judges. We have Gideon, the Midianite, or excuse me, Gideon, who defeats the Midianites with only 300 men. We have Barak, one of the judges who led the people against uh, the a united tribe against the Canaanite chariots. You have, of course, we know Samson, right? Samson and his hair, who ultimately 
uh, calls upon the Lord, is able to, to kill many Philistines. We have Jephthah, another judge. Ultimately, we get to David and Samuel, and you, and you, you would think, man, the writer of Hebrews, he spent so much time on Moses and, and, and Abraham. He didn't really spend any time on David, and he doesn't. He, just, he really just runs out of time. But you see Samuel, this, who had this long career as a judge and a prophet, and David, a man after God's own heart, even though he was a great sinner. And, and he says, and, he says um, and these, and who through faith in 33, and, and even though he is kind of referencing some of what he just, the list, he goes on and, say, and adds more to it, as we've even seen. Uh, those who faced lion's den, those who, who endured the fires, and so on and so forth. Those who in, endured all these different things. Those who, women who received back from the dead by resurrection. You think of Elijah and even Elisha who brought from a barren womb life through the power of God. And you see all of these, they obtained what they could never have obtained by faith. Finding deliverance and power in God. And then he goes on, 35 on through 38, talking about all of these who endured physical hardship. Some who were tortured. Some who were mocked and flogged and chained and imprisoned. Those who were sawn in two or killed with a sword. Uh, then he talks about how they lived. They lived about, they went about in sheepskin and goats and destitute, afflicted, mistreated. He's saying they, these were the scum of the earth in essence. They weren't the high, high powered, highfalutin people. And again, we see many types here. From the Old Testament prophets, as I said, John the Baptist to Apostle Paul to Jesus himself. They were all, as the writer says, unfit for this world because of their faith in God. I'm sure we can likewise add to this list of people we may have known or we may have heard of, of people who have endured. Uh, we don't have to go far even in today's world. Uh, you look at China, you look at the Middle East. Uh, recently, I've seen much news about the church in China that is suffering uh, under that oppressive government. And yet they continue in faith to meet. And you look at that and you go, have we as the church in America grown complacent? Have we grown comfortable in our faith? Have we taken freedom of religion as something that we are guaranteed? Forgetting that freedom of religion is not a guarantee. And it certainly can be taken from us. And the question becomes, how would we respond if the freedom of religion was taken away? I worry that it's become a foreign concept that we, practically speaking, live our life of faith like this. And we kind of say to God, we don't ever say this to God like exactly like this. We kind of act this way. God, I got 75% of this on lock. If you can just help me with the last 25%, that'll be good. I don't need your help all the way. I just need your help a little bit of the way. We don't trust in him completely. Even when we see his provision for us, even when we see his many promises, we fail to respond in faith, in obedience. 
And in all of it, through the whole of the chapter 11, we see those who by faith, by faith, persevere. Because the reality is this. We in chapter 11 got all the good bits, didn't we? What do I mean by that? We got all the good bits. Uh, Because when you talk about David here, even as we conclude with David, it didn't talk to you about David and Bathsheba, did it? It didn't talk to you about David and, and Bathsheba's husband who he had killed. It doesn't talk to you about any of that. It just talks about David as a man of faith. We got all the good bits here. Because they were people of faith that even as they continued to struggle in sin, they trusted in God. And so we look at ourselves and we go, our situation is not hopeless. Because even though we are sinners, that we struggle in sin still, Jesus is still who he says he is. And that we must put our trust and faith in him. And as we do so, we're able to persevere. So what matters is not our circumstances, does it? It doesn't matter what's going on around us. What matters is our faith in God. Our faith by which we may conquer any circumstance through the blood of Jesus. That our faith is sufficient while we await God's eternal promises. That all of these did not receive the promise immediately. We get this wonderful truth, as one commentator said, beyond the cross awaits a crown. We are awaiting the crown that is ours in Christ. So in our time of trial, we must stand firm in faith. Jonathan Edwards says it this way. The divine excellency of real Christianity is never exhibited with such advantage as when under the greatest trials. Then it is that true faith appears much more precious than gold. Even as we endure trials, let us cling to our faith. Let us persevere in that. Let us remember that in the end, when all else is gone, faith, faith remains. And as we consider this great list of people, I love the list of Hebrews, because it's very inclusive. There was rich people in there. There were poor people in there. There were Jews in there. There were Gentiles in there. There were men in there. There were women in there. There were some who were loved, others who were hated. There were successful and others who were not. But they had one commonality, that their faith grounded all of them. That they had faith that they would gain in Jesus everlasting life. Forgiveness of sins. Without faith, without that faith in God, we are left to perish with the useless things of this world. They all died. Every last one of these people died. Not receiving the blessing. They were looking to something better. A better plan, a better priest, a better covenant, a better sacrifice, a better blood, a better home forever. John Calvin says, a tiny spark of light led them to heaven. But now the sun of righteousness shines on us. What excuse shall we offer if we still cling to the earth? You hear that? He says, the tiniest spark led them to look for Jesus. But now we have the sun shining on us. What excuse do we have to still cling to the earth? We must not hold tightly to these things. 
We see this when we become unsatisfied. It's never enough. I need that one more thing. I need that one more thing. We like our comfort. And it looks different for each of us. Each of us is looking for something different to satisfy our needs, to satisfy our longings. We like the comfort they bring us. We can be hesitant to give up what the world has to offer. Have we fallen into this pattern of going through the motions of faith while lacking the true signs of faith? What does that look like? I could sit here and I could try to come up with, come up with a way to fall backwards. I could sit here and come up with ways to try to like examples. But the reality is this, that each of us has to examine our own hearts, don't we? What are the things that you specifically are clinging on to this morning and not giving up? And the reality is that to different degrees, I think we all have things. What do we need to give up for Jesus? What would it look like if we started this new year loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? What would it look like if in this new year we tried to love our neighbor even as we love ourselves? Meaning this, what would it look like if starting today you looked to the people around this room and started trying to love each other sacrificially? Meaning, sacrificing, it costs you something. What would it look like if today you began to love not only those around you, but those in your proximity, your neighbors, with that same kind of sacrificial love? That means loving even people we don't get along with or agree with, or do we have a list of people we, in essence, have just written off? We are to love with a Christ-centered love, not because they deserve it, not because they've earned it, but out of a desire to see this faith in Jesus Christ go forth, out of a desire to see God glorified, Christ glorified in all that we do. In this great cloud of witness that we have seen, and this great cloud of witness extends beyond even this text to the whole of the Bible, to the testimony of the church throughout all generations. In this great cloud of witness... We have seen those who have trusted in the promises of God. We have seen those who have overcome great obstacles. And we have seen those who have persevered through great suffering. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we come to the end of chapter 11, would you find and see a boldness of faith? One that turns to Christ as the author and the perfecter of that faith. One that, a faith that understands that he is better. Better than what? Everything. Better than what? Everything. Everything. Let us lay hold of the promises of God to respond to him in faith and obedience, oh. to trust and obey all that he has set before us. If we leave this chapter of the Bible, this chapter of Hebrews, and we see anything, let, it, let us see a faith 
that is impactful, not for faith's sake in itself, not for ourselves, but for the glory of God, because Jesus is supreme in all. We see the supremacy of Christ on display. We see it on display here in this table, which we are about to partake in. That Jesus, the very son of God, whose body was broken, whose blood was poured out, that you might have life. Come and see him who is better. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your goodness and your mercy and your grace to an undeserving people. Oh, Father, where we are weak and insufficient, where we are clinging to this world, show us. Help us to put off these things. Oh, Lord, where we are resting in you, show us that we may continue to rest all the more. For any who do not know this faith, would you bring them to the saving faith that they might rest and trust in Jesus who is better. And we ask and pray this in his holy name. Amen.